0: Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com/sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. Hi everyone, this is Raghu Marcus from the MindPod Network, and introducing Sharon's talk uh, for today. Uh, in this particular talk, which uh, originated at the Garrison Institute, where she does uh, many, many uh, retreats, uh, Sharon touches on the concept of the Buddha as a human being who had real questions, just like just like us. So, uh, you know, she really emphasizes the fact that the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. He taught a way of life. So... Uh, ultimately it's not about the buddha it's about the capacity that everyone has for a tremendous depth of understanding and freedom and that's what i've always loved about buddhism uh, it's uh, it it is really such a road map to be able to navigate our daily lives and and be balanced and it it has no real isms even though there is an ism here after B- buddha uh, that's really what Sharon's talking about here, and in her talks, and those of you who have heard Sharon before know quite well uh she is so uh connective and warm and um and practical and you you can really she delivers these concepts in a way that they are uh very easy to digest um you know, and, and all this stuff, as she said, is about putting it into practice to, you know, to see what, what it is for yourself. And she also talks here about retreat and what that really means. And, and I think uh, in my own life it's been a, a very important uh, um, practice, the, the practice of retreat. It, as she says, it provides a great opportunity for pausing to see what's actually happening for us right now. So we can trust more deeply and see more clearly, and if we don't take that time out, I found uh, every year actually um, I do uh, do a retreat. I usually go to India because I have so much uh, history. Those of you who have uh, have listened to any of the podcasts that we 've done with Ram Das and so on um, would would get that uh, uh, it just provides the completely um, right atmosphere uh to uh you know, in my case to be able to take advantage of of a retreat and, and a retreat and she calls it a skills training of sorts and i love the uh, how she uh, really uh, al- uh connects with the uh, you know s- the cultivation of the skills that are necessary for us to be able to navigate daily life and um and I, I remember, uh, you know, and I've done uh, Vipassana retreats, which Sharon has, uh, you know, is a teacher of insight meditation, of course, and, uh, and it talks about silence, uh, you know. <laughs> silence is our strongest guideline in retreat. So I remember the first retreat I went to, you know, it was completely silent, but there was like a 100 people, you know, and you're walking along and, and people are trying to, like, uh, divert their eyes from you. Because if you do eye contact, it's almost like you're not being silent. And uh, all sorts of uh, ridiculous thought patterns uh, develop from, uh, you know, keeping your mouth shut. It's an amazing thing. And uh, as she said, people do initially struggle with it. But after a while, it becomes something, you know, by the end of the retreat, you're like, and, you know, you're just completely ensconced in this place of peace and, and the idea that, you, you know, you've had not to uh, interact with in anybody, uh, you, you know, through, um, through dialogue is just fantastic. But, of course, then the retreat ends and then, my God, the, uh, the flapping of lips that goes on at that point. And uh, if you're not ready for it and you get the wrong person, boy, it's, a, it's fun. So this is a a terrific talk that uh, introduced a, a a retreat that she did at Garrison again um y- you know around the idea of what the buddha really means um it's not a distant uh, somebody who um uh you know developed uh, a a uh, uh, the path for us to become free it is real, and, and all of us can take advantage of it by, certainly, by g- going inside and and uh, f- finding the, the, uh, the depth of understanding that is available to all of us. So here's Sharon, and uh, this is the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. Uh,
1: so I think to begin with, I want to talk about the Buddha a little bit, since there's such a very large one behind me. Um, <laughs> In the Theravada tradition of the Buddha's teaching, those are the lineages and the um, systems of teaching found mostly in Southeast Asia, countries like Burma, Thailand, and so on. The Buddha is always considered to have been a human being. A human being with really, in effect, some very human questions about life. You know, what does it mean to be born into this human body and to be an infant, to be so vulnerable to the effect of those around us, and then to grow up and to grow older and to get sick and to die, whether we like that or not. And what does it mean to have a human mind? Where we might wake up in the morning filled with fear and then with delight and then with gratitude and then with hatred and then you know back to fear and you know, just this cascade of emotions without stopping? And is there a way, in effect, to have a sense of happiness that is not shattered or broken as the body does its thing, as the mind does its thing, as life does its thing, as we go through all of um, this constant shifting of pleasure and pain and getting what we want and having it go away and you know all of those changing states? So, when the Buddha is talking about happiness, it's not happiness like happy go lucky, you know, or uh, having only pleasant experience and then being overcome when things go awry. It needs to be something, using Sylvia's word, more steadfast, not tight, you know, but resilient and open and spacious. And so that was the Buddha's quest, in effect, you know, can I find that kind of happiness or, or peace? And said that whatever he discovered, he discovers through the power of his own awareness. And so can we, whatever our own personal questions might be. I went to India, as everyone who raised their hands knows, no doubt. Uh, in the uh, very early 70s, I went in 1970, and began my meditation practice in 1971. And my first teacher, right off the bat, and I think even the very first night of the retreat, said something that was very important for me, which was, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. And that matched really precisely what I was looking for, because I wasn't interested in philosophy I wasn't certainly wasn't interested in dogma. I wasn't interested in identity. I didn't want to call myself a Buddhist. I didn't want to reject anything else. What I wanted to discover was whether these tools I had heard about of meditation could actually do something about my own personal suffering, and could co- help me come to some resolution of the questions that I had, you know, very deeply. And you know, because it was maybe the very first thing I heard. About the nature of this path, it it formed a lot of my sense of things. You know, so we come here together not uh, really to talk about Buddhism, you know, but to experiment, to explore certain tools in a very supportive environment to see what we might discover. You know, so sometimes I say when we look at the Buddha, we see really ourselves. We see a potential that exists within ourselves to be free, to be compassionate, to have understanding, not just to live mechanically. You know, Maybe that capacity or potential inside of us is quite masked or covered over, something that's really hidden or something we hardly you know, believe in, but it's said to be there. So when we look at the Buddha, we really see ourselves. And we see ourselves not as apart and separate and better than, you know, somehow superior to everyone else, because this capacity is shared by all of us. So we look at ourselves to see all beings, to see all of life. So when we look at the Buddha, it's not about the Buddha, ultimately. It's about what is said to be this capacity that everybody has for a tremendous depth of understanding and freedom. So that's really the nature of our coming together here. I laughed as I was starting to tell that because I thought of a story, something came up in my mind about um, this time my friend Joseph Goldstein and I went and visited a friend in Houston, Texas, and the three of us went out to a restaurant one night not to have dinner there, but to order the food and take it back to our friend's house. So we were hanging out in the restaurant while the food was being prepared, and Joseph struck up a conversation with the kid who was working behind the counter. And you know, He's a young man, and he said that he'd never in his life been out of Houston and that his dream was to get to Wyoming. And Joseph said to him, well... What does that represent to you? you know, what do you think you'll find in Wyoming when you get there? And he described this place where you know it has such an immense sky. So there's such a, a profound sense of spaciousness and being unconfined and unconstrained and so open. It's like anything is possible. So Joseph looked at him and said, there's an inner Wyoming too, you know. And the kid said, that's freaky. And he walked away. (laughs) You know, so we don't always trust that place inside, that it might be there by any means. But you could almost say, like, the whole of the Buddha's teaching is centered around that possibility, that within us, there is this huge capacity for openness, for spaciousness, for being unconfined, for being free. And there are tools for actualizing that for making it real for each one of us and this I've always found quite breathtaking about the Buddha's teaching that you know it's like the very famous quote of the Buddha where he says don't believe anything just because I said it don't believe anything because a great elder has said it don't believe anything because you've read it in a sacred text he said put it into practice put it into practice and see for yourself what's true Like, that's a pretty incredible statement. Rather than follow me, you know, put it into practice. You can see for yourself what's true. And here are tools, you know, for helping clarify one's vision, to be more present, to see with greater insight, to open up more, and so on. Another one of my teachers um, said it this way one day. He looked at me and he said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. <laughs> and it was actually a great moment for me. I know it's hard for me to convey quite the tone of voice in which he said that because it was actually very, very kind. And I felt like it was maybe the first time in my life someone looked at me as though to say, you can do this. You can solve the problem of the confusion and the unhappiness that has brought you here to India to begin with. You can do this. So this is why we come together, is to have a chance to pick up these tools for the first time or for the billionth time, it doesn't matter, and to put it into practice, to see what we might discover about our own experience, to have confidence in our own experience, to be present with whatever is happening for us. And so... The whole nature of the retreat environment is really designed so we can do that. So we have the extraordinary opportunity of just stopping for a while and not just leaning forward into what might happen next and what do I have to do and who's the next person I have to call, but settling back into what is actually happening for us right now so we can trust it more deeply we can see it more clearly. One of the um, strongest guidelines that we have has to do with silence. And I want to talk about that a little bit because it is certainly odd uh, in many ways. And many times when people think about going on a retreat, where silence is going to be a strong component, it can often be the single most unnerving factor. And people say things like, I don't think I can be silent. I just can't do it for three days. Um, or my partner says, you'll never be able to keep the silence. Or Somebody said to me once, they're doing a betting pool in my office to see how long it's going to be you know, that I can actually stay silent and, you know, it seems so grim in many ways, but unlike our associations with it, keeping silence or maintaining silence or being in a space of silence is not the same thing as being silenced, you know, and uncared for and told to just keep quiet or being ignored. It's nothing like that. It's really seizing an opportunity That comes along so rarely where it's like for once in our lives, we can be a little bit quiet and we don't have to present ourselves to someone else as interesting or compelling or complicated or, you know, a sad case or whatever it might be in order to see who we are reflected back in their eyes. We can come back to ourselves. So it's really a tremendous thing and, and most commonly at the end of a retreat when people look back, it's one of the single most beautiful elements for them as they recollect the retreat. It's like, wow, you know, I could just take care of myself, I could pay attention to myself. I didn't have to explain anything to anybody. You know, so when we say silence, it doesn't mean like we will have, you know, different question and answer periods here. You don't have to like write a note you know, you can just raise your hand, ask us, or if you're talking to one of us or you need to talk to Jen or, or something like that. I mean, of course, you know, just speak. But it's taking the opportunity not to engage as we normally might, which is sort of incessantly. Almost like trying to, you know, get that reassurance, like, yeah, I'm really here. You know, because I'm talking and someone is responding. And so it's, it is very countercultural. It's a huge, huge difference from how we normally are. And in that space of sort of a relative lack of responsibility, certainly a relative lack of activity and the silence many things become clearer to us. So I would really urge you to, you know, with a good spirit um, experiment with that element of being here. We also work a fair amount with a continuity of awareness. I often think of meditation practice, and a retreat is certainly like an immersion into that. I think of it as a skills training, really, where we are taking the time and nurturing certain kinds of skills. In fact, in... um, The Pali language, the language of the original Buddhist texts, the word that's usually translated as meditation is bhavana, and it means to cultivate. It's like we're cultivating the ground so many wonderful things can emerge. There's also a sense of that word that I like a lot, which is kind of quirky, in uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, where they use the phrase for bhavana, Getting used to it. So, I think the idea behind that is that they believe that most people, maybe everybody, has had very deep experiences of connection just in life, you know, of being connected, being, feeling whole, uh, being extremely aware. And these are the experiences that we might say, ooh, that's freaky, forget that. You know, or we forget about, or we don't reveal, or we, you know, lose sight of, or we go way away from. And so they consider the practice of meditation like getting used to it, you know? It's almost like a return or a renewal. And in that light, I'd also say that, you know, even though for me, because I went to India when I was... I feel like doing a quiz. How old was I when I went to India? Uh, When I was 18. Um... You know, and so my whole spiritual life has been in the context of uh, the Buddha's teaching. You know, that's the languaging I use, those are the, imageries, the, the imagery, that, those are the metaphors, the stories. But I really do believe these are quite universal truths. You know, it has nothing to do with Buddhism. And so um, even though this is the way I would certainly tend to express things, it's not meant to be about even about the Buddha. It is about oneself and about our own deepest sense of of what is true. So we cultivate the ground. We develop these skills, skills of concentration. Most of us would say that we're pretty scattered, really. We're very distracted. Now you sit down to meditate, and it's not that long before your attention is way gone. You know, we go to the past, some incident where now we think, well, I should have kept quiet, but I really blurted that out, or I should have said something, but I was too timid. And, you know, we go over it and we go over it and we go over it. Or our minds jump to the future and we create a scenario that has not happened and may never happen. And we bear all the anxiety of that. You know, and in that, tremendous sort of dispersal of our energy and our attention is also a lot of fragmentation. So the process of what is known as concentration in the Buddhist tradition is one of bringing that energy together, just bringing it together, coming back. So we choose an object of attention, we settle our awareness on it, we find we're a gazillion miles away, we try to let go of the distraction and simply come back, so over time, what is developed is a sense of centeredness it 's also it 's almost like a retrieval of a lot of energy or power because that 's an awful lot that 's scattered away that 's not available to us, and when we can gather, it does become available to us so within the Buddhist tradition that practice, the deepening or the development of concentration is considered both a path of power it's very empowering and also it's a path of healing because to be that fragmented is not to experience our wholeness, so we just kind of bring it together and there is a sense of almost like weaving together a sense of being who we are being present and that's the uh, foundation of our process. And we develop the skills of mindfulness, which we'll you know, certainly talk about a lot more as well. Uh, to be aware, to be in touch, to know what we're feeling as we're feeling it. Not 15 consequential actions later. Oh, I was angry. You know, but to be sensitive, to be aware, to be balanced. So much of what arises in our experience we just struggle against automatically. And so there's not a lot of clear seeing. There's not a lot of learning because we're fighting. We're embattled. We're ashamed of what we're experiencing. We're hating what we're experiencing. We're trying to pretend we're not actually experiencing it. And so much of what arises we are consumed by. We're overcome by. We're defined by. And here, too, there's not a lot of clear seeing or understanding that, that gets engendered because we're just too caught up. So mindfulness, I would say, is a quality of relationship. It's learning how to relate to all of our experience in the moment so that we're neither fighting it and pushing it away, trying to pretend it's not there, on the one hand, nor are we, on the other hand, just overcome by it all of the time. So, mindfulness, you could say, is a place in the middle. It's a relationship of balance. It's not balance in the sense of trying to subdue things or being cold or um, disinterested at all, but it's the kind of balance that allows us to see much more deeply into what's actually going on. And it's the meditation or bhavana is the cultivation of. The skill of concentration, mindfulness, and compassion. So I think compassion really—I think it takes a, a different perspective. It takes a different way of looking at it to think of it as a skill. And we tend to think of compassion as a feeling, as sometimes we think of it as a gift. I think you know some people have it, others don't, but actually it's a skill. It's a skill of awareness. It's a skill of attention. It's based on many factors, you know. Just as, and certainly, we'll talk a lot more about this as well. But just as you um, might be in the habit of, say, looking back at your day, kind of evaluating yourself how did I do today? you also might be in the habit of focusing on or perhaps even fixating on the mistake you made. You know, the really stupid thing you said at lunch at that meeting. And it's almost like our whole sense of who we are and all that we will ever be collapses around that whatever we blurted out. So developing the skill of compassion is almost like asking yourself, anything else happened today? You know, it's not trying to deny what happened or pretend it was all fine, and maybe it was really stupid. You know, and that is consequential in its own way. But that's not all that we are, ever. And so by having a flexibility of attention, being able to look, from different angles, truthfully, and from different angles, really opens us to a very different way of sensing ourselves. And so, too, it is with others. So the many ways in which we will explore here together compassion as a skill. The whole uh, retreat environment is is designed in a way so that you can have the greatest continuity of practice possible, where you basically don't have to do anything else, which is pretty remarkable. And then just the last thing I'll say before we do just a small amount of practice together is that very commonly the beginning of a retreat is a very big adjustment. You know, we're not used to being silent. We're not used to slowing down. We're used to a lot more stimulation, uh, generally speaking. So I often think, like, when I sit a retreat myself, I think sometimes that there are, like, these two voices inside my mind. One voice says, oh, there's nothing happening here. Must be time to go to sleep. You know, so even if I slept for 15 hours, I sit down to meditate, like, con. Huh, just gone and the other voice says oh there's nothing happening here let's make something happen and there's this huge torrent of restlessness and agitation and planning and you know we can have pretty wild swings especially at the beginning from sleepiness to restlessness sleepiness to restlessness it's not uncommon and it's not aberrant you know it's not wrong while we can always have cycles of sleepiness or restlessness they tend to be the most intense at the beginning because it is a big adjustment. And so you sort of have to be kind to yourself and just get through that. The careening from sleepiness to restlessness is not actually the problem. The problem is believing the thought that arises that says, oh, no, three more days, exactly like this sitting. is never going to change. That's the problem. But that's not only a problem here. You know, so we have a big opportunity to be kinder to ourselves, to be patient, to be persevering, you know, just to let the experience unfold. And don't worry, you know, especially in the beginning, if if it's challenging. It is challenging. Very few people live this way, you know. And so it's a little bit of culture shock, too. But what's amazing is how... Over even just a short period of time, you know being here, being together, even though we 're not talking, starts to seem natural and there's there's a very different sensitivity that develops and a caring for oneself and, and for one another and you know it's a very different world, and so um, kind of give yourself a break you know and at the same time see if you can uh, be persevering you know and, and just keep going, don't feel discouraged, it's really not a problem, whatever you might be feeling, and to uh, really commit your energy and, you know, your sense of aspiration, your sense of purpose to seeing it through and just seeing what's, you know, waiting to be revealed um, as you do the practice. Okay, so we're going to sit together just for a few minutes. So lots of kinds of balances we talk about in bhavana or cultivation. Balances between tranquility and calm and letting go and relaxing on the one side and then energy and interest and connection on the other side. And you know, we will talk a lot more about these things. But right from the beginning it's sometimes said that a certain balance is reflected in our posture. So, you want to have your back be straight without being really stiff or overarched. If you slump way over, you'll very likely go to sleep, which you might do anyway, you know, but we don't need to set the stage so that it's nearly inevitable, you know. You want your back to be straight, but you also don't want to be rigid and uptight. Sometimes people will imagine a wall, say a brick wall behind them, and starting from their lowest vertebrae one by one, you just raise your vertebrae up against the wall and relax, something like that. And you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And to begin with, we'll just sit and listen to sound whether it's the sound of my voice or other sounds that may come and go. Of course we like certain sounds and we don't like others, but we don't have to chase after them to hold on or push away. Just let it come, let it go. And bring your attention to the feeling of your body sitting, whatever sensations you may discover. Bring your attention to your hands. Notice what your direct experience actually is. It's not fingers. It's different sensations. Pulsing, pressure, vibrating. You don't have to name these things, but feel them. bring your attention to the sensation of your breath. In this system of practice, it's the normal, natural breath. You don't have to try to make it deeper or different. And Find the area where the breath is most distinct for you, the in and out movement of air at the nostrils, or the rising, falling movement of the chest or the abdomen, and just rest. Rest your attention. On that area. See if you can feel the actual sensations of the breath. You don't have to name the sensations again, but just feel them. And it's just one breath. You don't need to be concerned with what's already gone by. You don't need to lean forward for even the very next breath. It's just this one. If you like, you can use a quiet mental notation of in, out, or rising, falling to go along with the feeling of the breath, but with just a tiny part of your attention. That most of your attention really go to feeling the breath. If you find your attention has slipped away, you've gotten lost in a fantasy, you've fallen asleep, whatever it might be, don't worry about it. You can use the moment when you realize your attention has wandered As a moment to be kind to yourself, to gently let go, and to begin again. Just gather your attention, bring it back to the feeling of the breath. If you have to let go and begin again thousands of times, it's fine. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support, and hope you will continue that support by going to MindPodNetwork.com/sharon and clicking on the donate button, or by using our Amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.